Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today I'm happy to welcome Carl Zimmer. Carl Zimmer is the author of 14 books about science. He writes the origin column for the New York Times. So you write about science. You write about all different types of science. We'll talk about your latest book in a bit. But what is it like being a science writer who covers a lot of different scientific topics? How do you stay abreast of all of them? Well, the the range of things you can write about uh, in science is one of the things that makes me love it. Um, that, you know, one day I might be uh, writing about chimpanzees, the next day I'm writing about COVID. Uh, and I mean, when you're, when you're writing about biology in particular, it may seem like you're all over the place, but actually there are these, these, you know, principles of biology that just bind everything together so that, you know, the same processes that drive the evolution of new kinds of pandemics, you know, they're, they're happening in us too. Um, you know, it produces, in one case, it produces, you know, a, a new deadly virus. In another case, it produces human beings who can have conversations uh, on podcasts. But uh, but it's, I think that's what really, you know, has sustained me in this career is just being able to move around to so many different interesting topics, but seeing how they all somehow connect. Did you study science in college? A little, not enough. I was an English major. Um, and I, I enjoyed taking science classes, but I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to become a science writer. Um, I didn't have that much foresight. So you wanted to be a writer and you fell into science writing. And I'll link in the show notes to an article you have on your website to beginning writers talking about the process of becoming a science writer. And it's not that simple. You don't just say, hi, I'm a science writer. Would you like me to write for you? Sure. I mean, in my case, you know, I... I just happened to, you know, get a job as an entry level job as an assistant copy editor at a magazine that happened to be about science. And I started working on these stories. And I'm like, this is really interesting. I'm really enjoying this. And then I had the opportunity to grow in the position to start fact checking and writing and editing and so on. It was it, Discover Magazine was a really great uh, education. Uh, and so I was there for, for 10 years in total. Uh, but uh, yeah, you certainly just don't, you know, wake up one day and, and become a science writer. Um, but certainly, um, when I'm talking with young people who are interested in that kind of work, um, you know, I do say like, well, start writing. I mean, don't, don't just imagine yourself as a writer, um, just sit down and begin to write. And yeah, it, maybe it'll be hard and painful and so on at first, but it does, it does get easier and, and you're not going to get better at it until you just make it something that you're constantly doing. So you've written 14 books. How do you decide that a topic is interesting enough for you to spend the amount of time that it takes, something it's a year or two, looking deeply into that topic? How do you find the ones that can keep you going through a project like that? Well, that is something I definitely take a lot of time to settle on uh, because you, you, you don't want to um, you don't want to get yourself connected and lashed to a, an idea for a book that's you're going to hate after a while <laughs> that you don't want to be uh, writing about something that <clears throat> bores you uh, after the first month, you know, because you will be working on it for a year, maybe two years, maybe more. Um, so you, you really need to be ready to, 
be effectively wedded to, to an idea. So, you know, I will make keep a sort of a running list. And every now and then I'll spend some time saying like, okay, well, that idea, how would that look like as a book? Like what, what would that be made up of? And, and pretty quickly I'll realize that a bunch of my ideas just aren't going to work or maybe they're better as articles. Um, but every now and then I find something where just the more I think about it, the more it opens up. And as I start to do research on it, I say, oh, actually, this is really interesting. There's a lot here I didn't really know about. Um, often there's a lot of history that has kind of gone, uh, um, you know, un- unwritten about. <laughs> and uh, and it gets really exciting to be able to say like, oh, I, maybe I can tell that history and do it justice. But there's also the commercial element. If someone else happens to come out with a book about your topic, just as you're getting settled in, then you probably think, oh, well, no point really trying to compete with that. That is a a real big challenge of book writing is that, um, you know, if you find a a subject for a book that you find really exciting, there is a chance that someone else has been looking and they found it too. And... (laughs) You know, and and uh, it, there's not much you can really do about that. And and um, you know, it's it's actually kind of easy, relatively speaking, to deal with that if you just started to think about this as a book idea when a book comes out, and you say like, "Well, guess I'm not writing about that." The real problem is when you're like two thirds of the way through, and then you find out there's another book coming out on the on the same subject, and it's. You know, and at that point, you have to say, like, you have to start to trust yourself. You have to say, this isn't just me writing about something. This is me producing something that I don't think anybody else can produce. So you have to find the confidence in yourself that you can make something original. Um, because we've all read, you know, different books on the same subject, and, and we think about them differently. That's because the writers have succeeded in making those books their own. Your latest book is entitled Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. And, I mean, you look at that on the surface, you you know if something's alive and you know if something is dead, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? It is, because, you know, if you think about it, how do you know? How do you know? Like, what what exactly are you using to, to judge whether something's alive or not? Um, are you actually, like, relying on, you know, actual, you know, um, scientific observation, or is it more of an intuition? Um, And I would actually argue that we mostly are just relying on intuition, whether things are alive or not, whether people are alive or not. And, um, and, you know, the the fact is that sometimes uh, there are things that can completely uh, overturn our intuitions, Um, things that are in a, in a border land between between life and death between life and non-life um and the more that you explore that that gray zone you start to realize that we really don't understand life at all really i looked up the definition of alive on google in a number of dictionaries and I actually studied applied linguistics, so I know that in a dictionary, your definition cannot refer to another word that needs a definition, right? So here's one from the Oxford Learner's Dictionary, alive, of a person, animal, or plant. Living, not dead. 
Merriam-Webster, the meaning of alive is having life, not dead or inanimate. And Cambridge, living, having life, not dead. And I think even semantically, we can't grasp the possibility of a continuum. It's true. And, 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 and I think in those definitions that you've been reading uh, about, about alive, um, it kind of shows you just how, how thin uh, the, our, our basis is for, for talking about things being alive. Um, there are, there are definitions of life um, that actually have been published by scientists and scientific journals and in books. Uh, I say definitions because there are more than one definition out there. In fact, there are several hundred definitions uh, and the number doesn't seem to be going down. <laughs> and are these are these people publishing definitions as theories, saying this is the way we can define it? This is the way we can define it. Well, you know, a theory of life is different than a definition of life. Um, and um, and and in a way, w- the problem that we're in right now is that we we already feel like we know what life is. And so therefore we should be able to define it, but we don't actually have a theory of life yet. Um, and so actually the, our definitions are always going to be uh, failing. That's why there's so many definitions because none of them can work because we don't have a theory of life. I mean, the analogy uh, that um, a philosopher like named Carol Cleland has used, and I describe in, in my book is water. So imagine defining water in, say, 1500. How would you define water? Well, you can see definitions of water then. Um, and, and basically, people just make lists of characteristics. Well, water is something that's transparent, and that's wet, uh, and that can dissolve certain things. But but that could also be a solid and a gas. Although maybe in 1500, they didn't know it could be a gas. They didn't. No, ice was not considered water. Ah, okay. Because it doesn't fit the definition. Right. It doesn't flow. Right. But then you would have these clear liquids that dissolved metals that other kinds of water couldn't. So now you had to say, well, we're going to call this, uh, you know, noble water, uh, royal water. Uh, you'd give new names to, to the water because it was doing things that actually didn't fit the definition. Uh, and no one could explain why. Um, so like, it's, it's just, so, so trying to define water in 1500 is just a complete recipe for disaster. But in 1800, 300 years later, uh, you, you can define water by saying water is is a substance that is composed of molecules consisting of hydrogen and oxygen, and and in a way like the definition isn't really that important because what really is exciting is is all the stuff that you can learn about water now that you have a theory of water, so you can you can understand how it is that that you know ice and liquid water are effectively the same thing. It's just that the molecules are in different configurations. But you, no one could do that in 1500. So that's where we are with life. There's no theory of life. We have, we're relying entirely, largely on our intuitions. Um, and But there are people who are working hard on trying to build a theory. Um, and, you know, maybe in our lifetime, they'll get there, but maybe not.
I'm reminded that back in the 1500s, even earlier, alcohol was called in many languages water of life. Right, because alcohol, again, was uh, this clear liquid. It could be a clear liquid, or mostly was a clear liquid. So yeah, so so yeah, the so the word water was was very problematic in 1500, in the way that life is today. So when did scientists or philosophers start asking the question, "What is life?" Um, they actually like started using that word that those words uh, in the early 1700s. Um, and what was happening was that you had the scientific revolution that had changed how we think about. Uh, inanimate objects, uh, because now we had physics and we could think about matter in motion. So this raised uh, important questions about, well, what about our own bodies? What about ourselves? What about animals and plants? Uh, and and it really, it really seemed like there was something, something that was fundamentally different between, you know, a rock and a flower, and. Uh, that that something was life, um, but again, that doesn't really uh, tell you what life is. It's like, oh, it's the thing that distinguishes one thing from another. Um, so, so then in the 1700s, you know, there were a, a lot of um, ideas put forward about how life was all about some sort of vital force. So that there, you know, there were forces in the universe, there's gravity, and so on. But um, but then there was some other force, a vital force, and that vital force was inside living things, and that allowed living things to do things that other objects could not, you know, to to grow, to become complex, to reproduce, to you know make new copies of themselves that are almost identical. All these things uh, together were made possible by this vital force. Um, and again, nobody could actually say what the vital force was. So, um, but this this whole view became known as vitalism later on. Interestingly, the Chinese came up with that 2,500 years ago, the idea of qi as a vital force that gave life. Yeah, no, there there are, you can, you can look in lots of different, you know, every culture is dealing in one way or another with what it means to be alive and have been doing so for thousands of years. There's no question about that. Um, when we're looking at, you know, how, you know, sort of modern Western science has come to be grappling with the question of what is life, we can trace it to um, the, you know, the early Western scientists who were working in, you know, in the years after the scientific revolution of the 1600s. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, and we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. 
Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So your book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, did you write this during lockdown? I finished it in lockdown. Uh, I, I had already been working on it for maybe a year, I think. And then um, I still had like a number of trips I had planned in early 2020. And, uh, you know, as as a science writer who writes a lot about diseases, um, and, you know, as I was talking with my colleagues and scientists, I could tell in, I'd say, well, January and February, I was like, okay, we're not going to be traveling. Um, and so it's time to cancel my trips. And, um, you know, I, you know, I suppose, you know, look, looking back, it was, that was a good thing for the book in the sense that it kind of forced me to stop and really think hard about it, you know, recognize I'm not going to Arizona or I'm not going to Scotland, you know, like that's not happening. So what am I going to do with what I have? And what additionally I could get with, you know, phone calls and Zoom and so on. Um, and also, like, I was transitioning to being a part of the pandemic team at the New York Times, where we were going to be reporting on things really on a sort of a breaking news daily basis. So I thought, like, I got to get this book done. Um, I, you know, like, let me let me focus. Let me just figure out what I what it is I want to really say. And just say it, um, you know, because when you're working on a book, sometimes it just becomes this uh, runaway experience where the more you think about it, the more you can add and um, you can write, you know, a thousand pages easy. Um, uh, you know, actually, the challenge with books is actually to stop and say, like, wait a minute, like, what am I actually trying to say? What's the minimum I need to say it? I forget who famously said I apologize for this long letter. I would have had written you a shorter letter if I had more time. Yeah, who said that? Who said that? <laughs> I don't I know. Remember. We'll look it up after. Okay. But did the fact of the virus and lockdown make you think about life in a different way? The 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 pandemic certainly um, sharpened my interest in viruses. Um, so in the book, I was already writing about viruses because viruses have long been a real puzzle for biologists about whether they're alive or not. They have incredible screaming matches about whether these things are alive or not. And they have been doing so for a century, basically since they discovered viruses. They've been saying, what is this? Like, in some ways, it's the exemplar of life. Viruses evolve incredibly fast. They're incredibly well adapted to, to their environment. They make new copies of themselves. That's all great. That's all what you expect from life. That's what makes life unique. And then they just fall short in these certain areas. You know, they have no metabolism. They can't, they can't uh, regulate their insides like we can. You know, we have, you know, our body temperature, for example, like we just keep our body temperature the same all the time. Viruses have no control over their insides. Um, and so in that respect, they're not life. So Suddenly, I had this like spectacular example of of this thing that is alive and isn't alive, uh, just turning the world upside down. So, uh, so I definitely started said like, okay, there, 
this this new coronavirus is going to feature in this book. That's for sure. We talk about carbon-based life, that all life that we know is carbon-based, but some scientists speculate that there can be life based on something else. What does that mean? What's so special about carbon that contributes to life or not? Well, carbon certainly is a, a really interesting element um, because of the way there are different ways that it can form bonds and, you know, those bonds can then um, in some cases be very stable or they can be easily broken and you can turn, turn carbon into uh, the basis for different compounds. And so, um, you know, life as we know it uh, has made amazing use of carbon um, and uh, you know, it's, it's, in our proteins, it's in our genes, it's, uh, and, and, uh, you know, it's the carbon dioxide, you know, th that is in the atmosphere, so gassed out of volcanoes, then gets consumed by plants and photosynthetic uh, microbes, and then becomes the basis for all of other life. So we just have this system of turning the carbon that our planet naturally is is providing uh, into more life. So there's, the carbon's great if you want to make life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that carbon is the only way to make life. And so some scientists have said, like, well, actually, you know, maybe silicon, you know, maybe maybe because silicon has interesting properties and how it forms bonds, and maybe that could be a way to make genetic material and so on. Uh, so yeah, we, again, because we don't really have a theory of life, we're, we're also have a very parochial view of life. You know, we talk about life based on one sample, you know, the, the, the life on earth and, and, you know, to, to assume that's the only way that life can be, I think is a big mistake. Okay, let's talk about how you use Scrivener. Now, we're doing this talk over Zoom, and I see a table behind you with a pile of books, and you said these are the remnants of the books you've looked at for your next project. I'm assuming that, as with most scientific books, or popular science as opposed to scientific research, you're looking at hundreds of books and articles. How do you organize them, and is the answer Scrivener? Uh, yeah, no, Scrivener has been essential for me, um, since I really started to play around with it and get it, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I actually, uh, started working seriously with Scrivener, I guess in like 2016. So I had written a number of books already by that point. Um, and, uh, there were a lot of things that are kind of painful about writing books. For example, you know, just organizing the all the reference material that you need for a book and then organizing the book itself so i would make do largely with microsoft word um you know word is fine for shorter things but it was a real hassle um for working on big projects like books and so once i figured out how scrivener works and how it would work for me I, th I think I'm sort of a visual person. So it really helps me to be able to see the pieces of the book and scan up and down very quickly. And when I've been working with editors, often their best guidance has been um, very structural, like saying like, this part doesn't belong here. You know, these chapters are out of order or these chapters should be split or these chapters should be fused or so on. And what I like with Scrivener is that, um, 
you can do that just by dragging around the different parts of the book. You say like, well, what if this came first? Well, how would that go? And then, you know, you can look at look at it in terms of the sections and then you can just read it in that new order. Um, and you can do that all very quickly, even if you're, you know, my, my manuscripts can be easily over 100,000 words. And um, right now I'm trying to get mine down from like 170,000 to maybe 150. That would be nice. Uh, and and just having that ability to to move the pieces around in Scrivener, that alone makes it incredibly valuable to me. How populated is the research folder in your Scrivener projects? Do you put a lot of content in there? Yeah. So what I do is I uh, will organize uh, my papers. So I, I, I have lots and lots of scientific papers as PDFs. I, I use a program called Bookends to organize those. And then I will... Uh, put my notes about the papers that are really important. I'll put those in a notes folder and then that will be searchable. Uh, I, I also then will take a, a, a tag for the actual reference from the paper and put it in that, in that notes document in the notes folder. So now I have a lot of the stuff, the really essential stuff that I need that I can then move into the book itself. Uh, and you know, if for some reason um, there it occurs to me, oh, wait a minute, you know, there was this letter from 1923 that I know totally nails this point I'm trying to make. I can just quote it. You know, I can just go into the search bar in Scrivener and just type the word, boom, there it is in my notes folder. I'm like, there it is. Move it into the uh, into the manuscript itself, and now I have and I have the tag for the source. You know, I just put that in the uh, in the footnotes in uh, in the footnotes box, and I'm ready to go. There's an idea that's been going around in software for a few years, and and this is using software as your second brain, and that's what you're describing. That you've got all the content in one place, and you can search for it without having to remember it. And that's something that's really practical, especially if you're probably using one percent of all the text of all the papers you've put in there as references. But you need to just find that one, as you say, the one citation from an obscure letter. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I, it, it, you can even then, if you want, you know, move whole PDFs into Scrivener, and then, you know, you'd be able to, to search those in their entirety as well. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't gone in that direction yet, but I've been thinking like, yeah, maybe I should try that too. Um but yeah, it's it, it it sort of frees up my own brain to just be making lots of connections and exploring lots of ways that I can tell a story. And then I know that I'll be able to find that stuff uh, very quickly um, without, you know, some incredibly elaborate formal superstructure to it. I, I just say like, well, I I need to find this thing about barnacles. I type in barnacle. Okay, there it is. Got it. I want to briefly talk about one thing, and this is literature and how literature was influenced by science and maybe influenced science. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 1818. Is this when scientists started doing some of the many experiments you describe in your book? Well, um, Frankenstein is such a fascinating book because Mary Shelley, at an incredibly young age, just has this 
flash of insight of, of, of recognizing some of the key issues in terms of uh, the struggle to understand life, uh, to define life, and the urge to, to master life. Um, and she captures it in this uh, in, in this amazing book. You know, she is it, it is incredibly uh, um, informed by the cutting edge of the day. You know, there there was I mean, this is around the time that electricity has been discovered. Um, and it turns out, oh, there there seems to be, you know, it seems that we can use electricity to make a, you know a dismembered frog's leg twitch so there's some kind of deep connection between electricity and life what is that could electricity be the vital force and so you know mary shelley brilliantly like says like oh what if you could you know bring dead organs back to life with with electricity the classic you know frankenstein monster move so I think in 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 a I think literature can offer this opportunity to uh, really get at the heart of some of the big issues that science is grappling with, and and I think that's still the case today. Okay, I'd like to ask my guest if they have a book that they would like to recommend to our listeners, something that is one of your favorite books or something that you've read recently that stands out for you. Um, I went back and read uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. You know, the movie Oppenheimer came out and the, the biography of Oppenheimer is really magnificent. Uh, but I just so happened to be reading Making of the Atomic Bomb again. And it's it's really an amazing achievement of doing incredibly deep research on the origin of modern physics and how modern physics, you know, gave rise to our n- nuclear era. Um, and uh, it, it's just it's just such a, a paragon of of this kind of writing that uh, some of us try to do. So I really highly recommend that. Okay, Carl Zimmer, your latest book is Life's Edge: The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to scrivenerapp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.